And we are going to talk about what God has for us. This is the message to the church, part one. And it might be a part one of seven, but we're going to see. I'm going to see what Smyrna does for us next week. It's it's one of those that has a lot of uh, encouragement in it and not a lot of warnings. It's like the only one. So if you look at, can you turn this down just a little bit, PJ? Thanks. If you look at Smyrna, which is next week potentially, um, the, the only thing that they do wrong is they have to suffer a lot. So that means, in my opinion, that means they're doing a lot of things right. Uh, so if we have to physically suffer, then uh, I think that's kind of biblical. <laughs> but um, Smyrna doesn't have anything really charged against them, unlike the church of Ephesus. Church of Ephesus today, we are going to find out, well, they do a lot of things right, but they do one thing wrong, and that messes everything else up. And you're like, what? Well, we'll get into it today in this text. And there's a lot of information in seven verses here, because it, it really hits uh, some major themes of, the, of, I would say, the New Testament, but really the theme of the Bible, which is redemption and Christ bringing us back to him. And so as we get into this, I want to give a little precursor to the seven churches, and then we will get into the text. But our, our main point today is that Jesus warns the church that we must endure and we must or they must endure in their obedience to receive the hope, hopeful reward Christ promises those who are faithful. And as I said, the message to the church, part one is today's message. So these messages are a prequel to the vision of John and the end of days. This is a revelation of Jesus Christ brought to us by our sponsor, John the Apostle. I don't know if he really was the... But he was the earthly messenger that wrote it down. And if you have red letters in your Bible, you will see that many of this in, in the letters are red letters, okay? We're going to be talking about that in just a minute too, what that means and all that stuff. So we'll get in all the good stuff. So they're there to prepare the churches to get ready for the second coming of Christ. You're doing a lot of things well. Here's what you need to continue to work on. You're doing a lot of things well. Here's what you need to suffer through. You have a period of suffering for seven days or 10 days. Um, here's what you're doing well. Wait a minute, you're not doing anything well. You're doing everything average, and I can't stand that. That's how it ends. Yay! Glad we're not like that today in America. Yeah, I think Laodicea like is the American church in the big sense. Maybe not white rose, but in other senses. So, have we been in this place before? Have we been in? Ta-da! Um, place of Ephesus as White Rose? I, yes, I think so. I think if you remember, recall a few years ago, Elder Emeritus Gary Luton preached on this specific passage, and I think he hit the nail on the head at the time and did a very good job. We're going to hit it a little bit different point of view. Craig has also given a YouTube video during the COVID era YouTube time, and um, so you can go back and check that out. It's a very good explanation of this passage as well. And again, my take is a little bit different, not because 
either one of those is wrong. It's just because I just want to be a little bit different, a little bit fresh, I guess, and give a little different angle. So these are the examples that we are to follow and not to follow. There's a lot of things, hey, you're doing this right. There's a lot of things, hey, you're doing this wrong. So this is how we need to obey in the times of trial. This is how we need to act. A lot of revelation deals with obedience, especially in these first two chapters. It really focuses on this is how you're supposed to obey to get to salvation. There are charges given to the seven churches by the Lord. And some people say that these seven churches represent seven different time periods from when Jesus passed away or went up into heaven until now, and this is how we walk through. That is not how I look at these things. So this, or they, it's our walk with the Lord for the big C church. What I mean by the big C church, I mean the church as a globe the big C church, the Christ bride, every church that meets on their holy days, right? Uh, whether that's Saturday, Sunday, Monday, or whenever they can get together, right? And a lot of home churches and things. So I don't necessarily look at it as this. Today I'm looking at it a little bit more specific as there's seven types of churches. We can be one of these types of churches, and then walk out of it, walk into this type, and walk out of it. Are we always perfect? Are we always following the Lord? Well, I don't know about you, but I am not. I'm horrible. I'm a sinner. I'm very good at sinning, and it's easy for me to make myself my own God, right? I am I borderline on narcissism, which I think we all do when we get in the sense that we try to justify our sin and we don't look at it from the point of view that um, I'm a sinner saved by grace. When I don't have me as a sinner, first and foremost, even in my daily walk, I ha- have disillusioned myself into what Christ means to me. Okay, We need to keep that in check, and that comes with some faithful maturity, I would say that you view yourself as a sinner, but I am a creation of Christ, and I've been saved by grace, therefore I am now this. Okay, So now I can look at myself in a sense of maybe accomplishment, pride, as I view it through the lens of Christ. Okay, it has to go through that lens because if I, if I skip that step, I automatically walk into where we are with the church of Ephesus. Okay, and we'll get into that in a minute. So we are to keep watch and we are to evaluate the church so we don't walk into these different seven steps. And if the Lord is charging his church with these steps, we need to pay attention because we don't have a lot of texts that deal with uh, Christ speaking to us like he does in Revelation here that says, hey, church, this is how you're supposed to act. We have some Pauline writings. We have a lot of Paulines. This is how you're supposed to act. But this is from Christ. These are what you're supposed to do. I'm proud of this. I am not so happy about this. And so we need to evaluate our church. The health of our church, the health of our leadership, and the health of our congregation. And who evaluates whom? How does that look? What does it look like? 
How do we get into this? So as we set up our structure of our church, the elders evaluate the pastor, the congregation evaluates the elders, and the pastor evaluates the congregation, the elders evaluate the congregation. Okay? So our church structure is set up so the pastor is semi-protected by the elder board, semi-also evaluated. Here's where you need to work on. This is what you need to to improve on. This is why um, we insist on having a a yearly evaluation as a pastor. This is one thing I want to know. And um, I wouldn't even mind if our elders kept a note. You need to work on this. You need to work on this. And uh, you do this well. Here's where you need to focus on because you really excel in this. And they do a good job of, of doing that. Um, and it's people I can trust, so that's also important. But we need to do that with as congregants to our elders as well. You're doing this really well. Um, I could really use some assistance in this area and this area. Would you be willing to help me with that or something like that? Those are all so good. Speaking the truth in love, right? And the congregation and the elders need to be expressing that as well. One of the things that I expressed this morning is I really would like to see Bibles coming to church, being opened up. And many of you guys do a great job of that. Um, But I also know that I don't all the time. It's easy for me to use my phone, and there's some danger in that, especially as the busier you are on social media, the easier, once that comes in your hand, you automatically, what's the first thing? Does your phone have muscle memory to go to, to find your Facebook? That's not good, okay? I mean, that's a habit. If it has muscle memory to find your Bible app, then uh, you ever, this is what, some things I do sometimes, as I switch the place where those two are in my, uh, and which one do I open then? Yeah, that's convicting. Oh boy. So I, I get in just as much danger as that as the next guy. And I've recognized that even more this week. Even yesterday, I was like, why am I on this? I am on there to entertain myself, to see uh, a facade that my friends have painted on how jolly or maybe sorrowful their life is. But it's the picture they want us to see. And it's not really the true picture, is it? It's a lie, and that saddens my heart because I like jelly. Oh, boy. So I need to work on that. So we need to keep watch. Wisdom and discernment are necessary here. Okay, It is good when you read and study Revelation to study the whole book, to look at the whole thing, to see the whole scope and then come back and look at it in the sections, okay? We have not gone through and read the whole thing yet. Uh, I would encourage you to do so. It doesn't take that long. Is it confusing? It can be. There's a lot of symbolism in it, but that's where you have to take some wisdom and discernment. Once you get past the first, I don't know, nine, ten chapters, then it starts to walk more in pace with what you see. But the first, I would say, five, six chapters... And you can even see it in chapter 1 and chapter 2 when he talks about the seven stars in his hands and the seven lampposts. You're like, what's that mean? Well, in chapter 2, you have to actually go back to 
the last verse in chapter 1 to get this. So we need to keep watch, use discernment. God's word is our benchmark. At White Rose Fellowship Church, they were asking on Thursday night, well, what denomination are you? Well, we're non-denominational. What's that mean? What does that mean? I guess it means that God's word is our benchmark. God's word is where we find our truth. We don't look to our denomination to tell us our truth. We don't look to our bigger chapter to find out what our truth is. We look to God's word first and foremost and last and all in between. And when we get off of that, that's when red flags start coming up. That's when we start saying, hey, that's, that's where the checks and balances come in with the congregation, the elders, the pastor, and the pastor, and the elders, and the congregation. Right? It's, it's good for you to pay attention on Sunday morning, but it's, it's great when you say, well, what did you mean by this? I've always interpreted it this way. How did you come to this conclusion? I don't mind those questions at all. I don't mind those comments at all. It keeps me sharp on my toes. And sometimes it's, well, I meant in the guise of Revelation chapter 1, uh, opposed to the whole thing, and I did not clarify that very well. I did that last week, and I, Jim asked me about that, so that was I appreciate that. So that's what we're supposed to do. So we use it as our benchmark to determine our worldview. So we don't look at CNN to tell us our worldview. We have God's word, and everything comes off of that. We don't look at Fox News and, and look at everything off that, or we don't go to some conservative news site and find that, or some liberal news site, and that's what our worldview is determined by. It is determined by God's word. What does he say about life? What does he say about death? What does he say about morality? What does he say about fill in the blank? Right? Does God really like the color orange more than any other color? It doesn't say that in the Bible. I don't know. I don't know what God's favorite color is. I would say all of them because he created them. Right? Every color has its place. We use it to keep ourselves in check. We use it to self-evaluate. We use it to watch out for false prophets. We make sure that we're not our own false prophet. When we interpret the Bible incorrectly, we become a false prophet unto ourselves. What's one of the popular ways that the Bible gets misinterpreted today? Well, God's a loving God. I don't know why he would do that. God would never do, send somebody to hell. That's not what a loving God does. Well, actually, yes, it is, because if you're a loving God, you have to be a God of justice. And if you're a God of justice, you have to have right and wrong. And if you have right and wrong, then there are consequences for being wrong. Therefore, he's a God of love. What? How did you get there? Oh, that's how you get there. You gotta have maybe you needed somebody smarter to explain it to you, but that's that's the process, that's the steps. Okay. So we need to it as our litmus test to check any other preacher or teacher or this preacher and teacher, right? It is our litmus test. Everything we say from the pulpit needs to go through God's word. Does it hold up? If it doesn't, then there needs to be an apology on Facebook. I said this last week. This is what I meant. 
Um, this is not how it came up across. I apologize. That should happen. Okay, so if you catch me in saying something dumb, please let me know. I don't want to be dumb. Okay, Christ Jesus warns the church that they must endure in their obedience to receive the hopeful reward Christ promises those who are faithful. Open your Bibles now to Revelation chapter 2. We're going to look at the first seven verses, which is the message to the church of Ephesus. But we're going to read verse 1. We're going to break it down in three different sections, and actually four different sections, and go from there. So Revelation chapter 2, verse 1, in the New Living Translation reads like this. Write this letter to the angel of the church of Ephesus. This is the message from the one who holds the seven stars in his hand, and the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Now, if I'm going to read this verse alone, I need some context. I need to know who is giving this message. Because guess what? As we go through each one of the seven churches, the same person is described a little differently, but it's the same person talking. How do I know who this is? Where do I get that information from? Well, how do I know? I look back one verse prior to, or Revelation chapter 1, verse 20, and we find out that the previous verse in this letter tells us that this is Jesus Christ. He is the one that's holding these stars and the lampstands. He is the one in the throne room. He is the one that we're talking about here. Jesus is the one. It's the previous verse in the chapter. This is the danger of splitting chapters and verses in the Bible. Okay? So what do you mean by that, Pastor? There's always been chapters and verses in the Bible, but not originally. These were letters written to be read in whole and going back and to study. The reason why we have chapters and verses today is because somebody clever came up with, well, it's that one place in the Bible. Well, now you can get specific. It's in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, where we find that grace is what saves us and not works. Things like that, right? But if you want to get the context of Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, you need to read the whole chapter of Ephesians chapter 2. Dare I say, you need to read the whole book of Ephesians to understand what grace really means. Okay, he does a really good job of explaining grace and then how it works into works and how it works into faith. It's pretty amazing. So in this case, we need to look one verse ahead of time. But if you really read the whole chapter one, you get a little bit bigger of an example of what it means to know Jesus there. So we will make sure to read the verses in context, or we'll miss something, or we'll take something out of context. The chapters, chapters and verses were added later for us to find certain passages faster, but you need to get it in context. Okay, very important. The next one, the next caution that I found that popped up, red letters. Do you have the red letter Bible in, possibly? Well, that's not necessarily a bad thing. I don't mind that it's not red letters because in this passage it does show red letters here. But there's other passages that I'm like, well, if this is red letters, then this should be. If you ever read First, 
1 Corinthians, I think it's chapter 15, but I'm not 100% sure. It says that God, Jesus said this, and that's not in red letters in a red letter Bible. And I'm like, well, if this is in Revelation, then this should be in Corinthians. But it's not. So it doesn't always give you, well, Jesus said this. It doesn't always. So these are just references. These are suggested things that we need to be careful about as well. They're not perfect. Uh, They were added in by man, and they did a very good job, but they're not perfect, okay? So since we know that Jesus is speaking to us, we need to pay attention to what he's saying to these churches because this is talking to the church in general, not just the church in Ephesus. This is a message to all churches, don't be like this, or be like this, okay? So we need to pay attention, and we need to put our church through the litmus test to see if it holds up. Have we failed this litmus test in the past? Yes, we have. We had to get back on track. And when we're under pressure, we see these things come to light even more. And Christ applies this even more to our church. When we get into financial hardships as a church, when we get into maybe the attendance is going down or we have a disagreement amongst the believers, these are when the things pop up. These are when they come to light. And this is when we can really get a true diagnosis of the church. And then we have to incorporate that and say, okay, Lord, forgive us. Let us walk closer to you. How does that come back? We got to forgive one another as well. And Christ will bring us back into that. So Christ warns us, warns the church that we must endure in our obedience to receive the hopeful reward Christ promises those who are faithful. Revelation chapter 2, verses 2 and 3. Jesus says, I know all these things you do. I have seen your hard work and your patient endurance. I know you did not tolerate evil people. You have examined the claims of those who say they are apostles but are not. You have discovered they are liars. You have potentially suffered for me without quitting. That is a pretty good testimony for a church right there. Faithful endurance. That is also our next point. Faithful endurance. Notice in this passage, Jesus is talking to believers. He's talking to the established church. Those who have had their faith tested and they have endured. For those who don't believe, for those who are still searching, have you found a church like this? Have you found a church where the the congregants are faithful? Because if you have, then you can see a picture that Christ has given for the example set by him to the churches is also set by the church about him. Okay? We are to follow Christ. We are supposed to be mirrors of Christ. We are supposed to be like the moon and who reflects the sun. We're supposed to be reflecting the Son of God, okay? So faithful endurance. Notice in this passage, Jesus is talking about believers. They stood up in times of evil. They stood up to it. They called it what it was, and they've weeded out false teachers. 
they have endured in the pushback for being faithful. People were saying, oh, they're Christians. Oh, they're this, they're... And there were consequences for being Christians at that time. And they stood up and said, we're still followers of Christ. And on paper, this church looks great. They're following God's word. They're producing God's works. So what's the problem? So what's the problem, right? If they were to call a Saturday night prayer meeting, people would show up. They'd get at least half the church there. They might even get a few community involved in. They might even invite a few other churches, and they might have a prayer meeting, and it might go well, and it might just look great. But there's something wrong. There's something wrong, and he charges them with it in Revelation chapter 2, verses 4 through 6. But I have this complaint against you. I think NIV says charge against you. Um, this complaint against you. You don't love me or each other as you did at first. Look how far you have fallen. Turn back to me and do the works you did at first. If you don't repent, I will come and remove your lampstand from its place among the churches. But this is in your favor. You hated the evil deeds and the Nicolaitans just as I do. Next point is the charge against Ephesus. This is really the meat and potatoes of the passage right here. It's three verses, sums up most of my Christian walk right here. The problem is they're enduring under their own strength. How in the world did you get that from this passage, Pastor? Well, I will go into it a little bit. The city of Ephesus is known for its knowledge. They have vast libraries. And however, Christ does not call us just to know about him. What's he say about the, the demons? They know who God is. They know who Jesus is. And they shudder. So knowing God isn't enough. Are the demons going to make it back to heaven? No. They made their choice. They chose when they, to follow Satan, that was their choice, and they fell from hell. Fell into hell. Whoa. Right? Christ calls us to be transformed in his image. Not my image, not my strength, but in his strength, in his image. Christ's message does not change whether it was delivered by John here in Revelation or Paul in Romans chapter 12. Why don't you turn there with me? Romans chapter 12 verses 1 through 5 really gives us, it really paints a picture what it means to be transformed in the image of Christ. This is the beginning of the application we find in Romans. So Romans chapter 12 verses 1 through 5 goes like this. And so, dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to give your bodies to God because of all he has done for you. What has he done? He's died on the cross. What has he done? He's given us salvation. What has he done? He doesn't require payment for that other than to surrender to him and his grace and follow him in faith. Why should we surrender now opposed to later? Well, because everybody's going to surrender 
Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Whether we do that on the pearly gates and the day of judgment, or if we do that now, he says if you do it now, you'll be rewarded for what you have to go through. If you do it then, you're going to go to hell. That's as simple as that, right? You have to do it while you're alive. That is one of the prerequisites of salvation. We have to do it while we're alive to get into heaven. Are we guaranteed tomorrow? We are not. So, after all he has done for us, let them be a living and holy sacrifice, the kind he will find acceptable. This is truly the way to worship him. Verse 2, do not copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person, changing the way you think. Then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. What does God want me to do? What am I going to be when I grow up? What am I going to do? Well, if you're transformed by the renewing of your mind, God will answer those questions for you in the next step. Okay, that's where it starts, right there. Because of this privilege and authority God has given me, I give each of you this warning. This is Paul talking. Don't think that you are better than you really are. This is the exact same message that John is and Jesus is saying to the church of Ephesus. Don't think that you're better than you really are. Be honest in your evaluation with yourselves, measuring yourselves by the faith God has given us. Just as our bodies have many parts and each part has a special function, so it is with Christ's body. We are many parts of one body and we all belong to each other. If somebody in the church is suffering, if somebody is hurting, it hurts the body. When you have a hangnail, does the rest of your body know about it? Absolutely. If you have an infection, does your, the rest of your body know about it? Yes. Usually comes out in a fever, right? And so it is with sin. So it is with individuals who are in sin. We can hurt the whole body by sins in our own lives, Right? Praise God for his redemption. Praise God for his grace that he is willing to restore us back to him is pretty amazing. So Paul pleads with us to surrender our worldly desires today and daily and tomorrow and the next day. It's not easy, folks. I know. I like to be my own God, my own Lord of my life. And he asked me to give that up on a daily basis. What's that sound like? Sounds like a small, simple prayer. Lord, I give today to you. Allow me to surrender my life to do your will. Let your will be done, not my will be done. On earth as it is in heaven. You ever heard that prayer before? Yeah. Jesus even gave it to us in a model. This is not, the the Ephesus church is missing that model. So let that be your sacrifice to give to the Lord. Have you ever wondered what you can give to the Lord and show him that you care about him more than the world? 
you surrender your thoughts. Lord, I give you my thought life. I surrender it to you. You surrender the entitlement of yourself and you get into the Bible. I remember one time we were at, down at um, Sandridge Missionary Church at a, it was my first year, I think, as a pastor. So this is back in 2003, 2004. And we had a board meeting, a retreat, and we met down there. And Pastor Dave asked, do you read your Bible more or do you pray more? Do you read your Bible more and do you pray more? Answer. And is there a right or wrong answer? There's not a right or wrong answer necessarily, but there is. Here's here's the answer. I answered, I pray more. Well, what am I doing? I'm telling the Lord what I want him to do. When I read my Bible more than I pray, that I'm searching for him and finding him, and then I can pray out of his word. So is there a correct answer to that? There absolutely is. We need to get in God's word because that allows him to speak into our lives opposed to us speaking to God. Lord, help me with this. Lord, do this. Lord, do this. Well, how about you just, this is shanism, so I'm sure God doesn't say it this way, but he may sometimes. Why don't you just shut up and listen sometimes? Ouch. Have you ever gotten one of those passages of Scripture that speaks to you so strongly that you know you're ignoring it? That's kind of how I get sometimes when God does that. Or a decision that I make that I should have picked up two years ago. I've had those too. Man, if I would have figured this out the first time he told me, I'd have been better off. Give to the Lord as a holy sacrifice surrendering your thoughts, surrendering your entitlement, and get into your Bible. Surrendering the patterns in your life that look like they come from the world. I mentioned Facebook, but there's TV shows. There's, there's doing nothingness. I just, I just wanted to calm, down, calm my brain down. I just wanted to veg a little bit. There's other ways to veg that are a lot more holy than turning on ESPN. Oh, ouch. Right? For me, maybe it's HGTV. I can't even leave that on anymore. Stinking commercials ruin that sh- channel. I got one left. I can watch the DIY shows. and Otherwise, I'm, I got to go to... I'm at PBS now because most of the time I can trust their home improvement shows anyway. I can't even trust any other kids' shows a lot of times these days, which stinks. Surrender the patterns of your life that look like they come from the world. Let God transform your mind into a new person. That's what Paul says. Transform your mind. I I don't know what it looks like, Lord. Ask him. Transform my mind. Transform what I have to say. Lord, I didn't get anything out of this passage today. Lord, open my mind so I can see. Read it again. I still didn't get anything. Guess what you got to do? Read it again. Right? It's not rocket science. The problem is not with God's word. The problem is with you. So if you don't understand, by the third time, maybe you should call your pastor up. What's he saying in this passage? I don't understand. You know how many, pas- how many calls I get during the week? About, I didn't understand this passage. 
You know how many calls I got in this month? You know how many calls I got in this year? I don't understand this passage. Never have I been called by this congregation to say, explain. Now, I have had some personal meetings, okay? So I've had a good 24, so a couple dozen of those in person, which is probably actually better. But if you don't understand something, you got to ask. And when you don't ask, what is that? That's pride, okay? How do I know? I'm a very prideful person. (laughs) I know. I don't like to ask. But the more I ask, the more I ask for help, the more I ask him for help, the more the Bible comes alive. And I can't stop. I'm being transformed by the renewing of my mind. My thoughts are dwelling on him. And when I get excited because somebody else is excited, oh boy, you better watch out. That freight train ain't going to stop anytime soon. That's what I want for you. And I hope you want that with me. When we get together, may I impart a little bit of encouragement to you that you may encourage others. That's what Paul says in chapter 1 of Romans. I want that same encouragement. When we get together, what do we talk about? I hope it's God's word. I hope it's first and foremost. Then we can talk about the Bears. Then we can talk about the Cardinals and all those other sports teams that just don't add up, do they? Just kidding. I used to be a Cubs fan, so I can talk about them a little bit. How are we to transform? What's it supposed to look like? What's a caterpillar look like after it metamorphoses? Does it look like anything like a caterpillar anymore? Not one bit. You can kind of maybe see like the trunk of the, the butterfly. Oh, yeah, I can see where it shriveled up and maybe looks like, but not really. I mean, they, they're so different. You're like, oh, yeah, I see a little bit of my old self there, but, man, I've been transformed by the renewing of my mind, and it transforms my lifestyle into something beautiful. Amen? That's what Christ does. And if you're not getting to that point, then dare I say you need to dig a little bit deeper. And I'm not saying that out of works. I'm saying that out of surrender. Surrender your reading to the Lord. If you surrender it to him, he will reveal what you need to see. So then God's path will come clear to you. He will make your vision clear. This is where we are to go next. Then you can walk in his Will, where's the best place to walk? In his will. Not with will, but in his will, right? So how do I surrender? Here's your application this morning. How do I surrender? And I got a lot of it, so hang on. First one, know your place. God is first. You are second. Maybe even third. God is first. Others are second. You are a third. Serve. Learn how to serve. We are nothing in comparison to God. We allow him to give us value. How do I know I have value? I know it by the relationship of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, how do I know that? What value has God assigned to me? I'm so Precious. 
I'm so valuable that he gave his son to die a gruesome death to save me, to save you. That is priceless. We can't even understand that concept. You know how they got it on Thursday night? We talked about the Passover. We talked about the Passover. We're walking in Jesus' last week. And I said, well, you'd have to give up Coda. It'd be like giving Coda up. And your daughter was like, oh, no, you ain't taking my Coda because that would be their Passover lamb. They would, it would be like a household pet, and they would hang on to it. That is the relationship a father has with his son. He doesn't want to give it up, but he wants to save each one of us, and he's willing to do that because we are priceless. That's the value he puts on us. Pretty amazing. So know your place. Allow him to give us value. We don't assign this value to ourselves. And I see this a lot in my boys. I see this a lot in my boys. My son, William, he allows us to assign value to him, sometimes to a fault. So he needs to know his own value. He didn't know I was going to say this this morning, but I am. And I need to remember to do that. I walked in the other day, and he's on the computer, and I said, I'm proud of you. And he turns, he says, thanks. And he's like, oh, now I know why you did that. Because this is what I was thinking about. This is what I was writing at the time. And I was like, I'm proud of you, William. I need to let him know that. Fathers, we need to let our children know we are proud of them. We need to know, let them know how they are unique, how they amaze us, right? Or else... They'll do it themselves, like my other son, Sawyer. If you've ever talked to Sawyer much, you'll find out that he's pretty good at something. I'm actually really good at that. I might be the best. How do I know that? Because Sawyer is a mini Shane. That's right. I say that to myself all the time. For me... To surrender, to ask questions, is not natural, folks. It is actually very against my nature. And also, out of that, is insecurity, right? And I have not given my son security to know that he is good at something. When he starts assigning that to himself, he's really asking, uh, Dad, am I, do I measure up? How do I know that? Because that's what I do all the time. Hey, I'll, I'll, I'll do it to this. This is what I do to my wife. Hey, the laundry got done. Did you notice that the laundry's done? Yes, because I want her to assign value to me, right? You did a good job. Pat me on the head, scratch me on my ear. <laughs> right? That's <laughs> how I do. Sometimes I'm getting over that a little bit. I haven't done that in a while, anyway. She's like, oh. Because <laughs> you haven't done the laundry in a while. <laughs> I unloaded the dishwasher the other day, and she said, did you do that? I did. I didn't toot my own horn. That's, that's why she was surprised, because I'm usually like, hey, go check the dishwasher. 
I, I did that. So I'm getting a little bit better. So just as our earthly father helps out his boy, his young lady in our, the church I'm talking about there, not Jesus, so our heavenly father, father assigns value and worth to each one of us. Is life worth living? Absolutely. Am I going to find that out in my own self? No. If I look to myself for my value, I will find nothing. If I look to, at my value through the lens of Christ, I find everything. This is what the church of Ephesus is missing. Okay? Paul calls us to evaluate ourselves honestly. And if somebody has a problem with you, and you evaluate yourself, and you still don't have a problem with yourself, you need to reevaluate. You need to ask somebody, what am I doing to make this person annoy this person? What am I doing? And the problem might not be with you, but you better check. You better check two or three times, right? Because there's something that you could probably work on in that relationship to make that relationship smoother. Who do we hurt if we're dis- we use dishonest scales to evaluate ourselves? Ourselves, right? If we're like, well, I'm, I'm pretty good. I'm even better. I'm even better. I'm the best. So I was running off camera there, right? That's wrong. We can't walk it, the fulcrum over to the side and then tip the scales. It doesn't work that way. We are not the fulcrum. Christ Jesus is the fulcrum. Always. So how much faith do you have to have? That is the measure you use. Or how much faith do you have? That's the measure you use in your evaluation. If you have little faith, guess what? You get to get a, a little bit more grace. If you have a lot of faith, Christ requires more from you. I think you can find that in his parables. The more that I give, the more is required of you. Meaning you look at yourself as Christ sees you. First, you're broken. You're a sinner. You do not measure up. You are not holy. I am not holy either. I'm preaching to myself just as much to you. Then, restored through his grace, Christ assigns your value. Then we walk with him in faith. We grow in that grace and that faith, and then we encourage others to do so who encourage others to do so. How do you know that you're making disciples of Christ? Your disciples are making disciples of Christ. They're not bringing them back to you to, to lead them to the Lord. Okay, That is a hard, hard thing for a pastor to do. When I get you to start making disciples of others who are making disciples, that's exciting. One of the things I got really excited about this week is my friend Jesse Luton said, I started a Bible study. I was like, yay, we had like 12 people there. We might have 36. I'm like, how do you jump from 12 to 36 if God's in it, right? So keep God in it. Praise God. That's exciting. Let's rejoice with her. Woo! So they restored to his grace, and we encourage others to do so. And then we start over 
and always through this lens. This has to be a daily process, folks. We surrender to the Lord. And when we don't, we get into problems. So when we look at Jesus through John in Revelation says they're skipping those first three steps. And what I mean by the first three steps is Christ, this is how Christ sees you. They don't care how Christ sees them. They do, but they don't. You know, they assume. They assume upon Christ's, Christ's perception of their self. Don't ever assume on that, okay? Unless you're assuming you're dirty and junk. But Christ changes you. He transforms you now. So now you have to look at yourself through his lens. It's kind of like looking back to look forward, okay? They don't assume they're broken, they're like, oh, yeah, I know I sinned some, but I'm not this. Well, guess what? That's pride. That is a dangerous trap to get into. I've been saved. Once saved, always saved, so therefore I'm, I'm good to go. No, you are not. You still need to give yourself over to Christ on a daily basis and surrender, or you get caught in uh, a trap that you're assuming upon his grace that you are saved. That's a dangerous trap, too. One I've fallen into myself, so I can speak from experience. So we would, we would go right down to God's word and follow it, but not surrender. Our thoughts and our desires to the Lord, we need to surrender our thought life, our desires. Ouch, pastor, that sounds a lot like what I like to do. Well, like I said, it takes one to know one because I do that a lot myself. I'm like, Lord, you can have this, you can have this, but I'm going to keep this, this, and this. And they're little things, so I'll just hang on to what does happens to little things. C.S. Lewis's The Great Divorce, have you ever read that book? Um, he goes through a little chapter or section about lust, and it starts with this little imp on his shoulder, and, and the angel asked him to cut it off. And he says, no, I, I think I'll just hang on. He's about ready to cut, let him do it. And he's like, well, well, then he starts asking questions. And he's like, well, it's really not that bad. And as he justifies his sin, it grows and grows and grows, and it starts to consume him. And the angel says, if you don't let me cut it off now, you will disappear. You will cease to exist. He cuts it off, and he becomes a shadow of his former self because lust consumed him so much. It is a great picture of any sin. Pride can do the same thing. Pride does the same thing and many times over. It takes one to know one. This is our biggest sin. This is what Adam and Eve struggled with. We assume on our relationship with the Lord and go straight to the works. We assume that we're good with the Lord, and we say, Lord, I'm going to do this in your name. I'm going to do this for you, and I forget that I had to surrender to you in the first place. Oh, darn. So everything I've done is a wash because I did it for myself, right? How do you know that you're saved? It comes down to surrender. You surrender to the Lord, then you do see good works out of that, but if you do good works to be saved, then you're not saved at all. And there's a paradox there, isn't there? It's a battle between those two, and they wage war. And it looks good in both cases, 
because we're getting results. But one is deadly, and that's what the church of Ephesus is dealing with. They are assuming upon their own goodness to get them to heaven, opposed to Christ's grace. So, let's see here. We forget our first love, our ministry, our lives, our spiritual walk. It suffers for it. And why do you think on a regular basis we do communion? It resets that trigger, right? It says, God, you did this for me. You died for me. You had to die because of me. And if I didn't surrender to you, in our case, on a monthly basis in communion. It should be a daily basis. But communion, I always think, is a bigger reset than the average bear. And when I reset myself to surrender, to humbly seek your forgiveness, God shows up in bigger ways in your life. And when you continue that process and walking in sanctification, God shows up in bigger ways. And you walk in his will, and you know the way to go. So the one thing the church at Ephesus has not done is they don't lord themselves over the church. So they lord themselves over themselves, but they don't become somebody else's God. Okay, that's what it talks about the Nicolaitans. Nick, Nico, Nick, Nike, Nike, conquerors, right? That's the name, that's what, that is victory. It's another interpretation that Nike likes to go with, but it really means conquerors, okay? So they don't put up with the Nicolaitans. They condemn those who do. So if somebody tries to become a god over a small group or a god over the church, they say, no, that is wrong. We can recognize it as wrong, which is one of the deceptions we see that they look pretty good. They recognize evil. They recognize good. But they themselves are their own God. And we got to surrender. It is so important today in the church of America. Nicolaitans, conquerors of people, is what the Greek definition of that is. What are they? I don't really know. Um, but we're going to say that they are people that tried to lord over other people. They try to rule over others. That's what their name means. That's what. If you break down the Greek, that's what it means. The church may rule, this church may rule their own lives, but they don't lord it over others like these conquerors. They don't allow false prophets to come in. They don't become false prophets themselves. Okay, Christ Jesus warns the church that they must endure in their own obedience to receive the hope full reward Christ promises those who are faithful. The last verse, verse 7 of chapter 2. Anyone who, whose ears to ear... Wow. Let's try that again. Anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what he says to the churches. To everyone who is victorious, I will give fruit from the tree of life in the paradise of God. Right? Victory, conquerors. And then he flips it on them and says... If you are victorious, this is what you get. Last point, learn from their mistakes. This is why God, this is why Jesus gave us these letters, so we can learn from their mistakes. 
This is an open letter. It is written to that we may all learn from the mistakes of the Ephesians. To those who learn how to surrender, we, might, we will have eternal life with Jesus in the presence of God. No more wickedness, no more pain, no more sorrow. We will be transformed into spiritual beings who do not have a desire to sin. Praise God. Have you ever wondered why God's judgment will be so severe when we, if we don't repent? Have you ever wondered that? Why is there a hell? Because we'd be subject to God's wrath. If we don't repent, we will be subject to God's wrath. God would totally remove his hand of protection. His grace would be gone. His love would be nowhere to be found. And there would be no mercy because mercy comes from God. And we would face his wrath because of a choice that we have made. Not something that he has given us, something we chose to take. There's no putting this on someone else. We are responsible for our own actions. And the act of surrender to a holy God is of the utmost importance because God's wrath will be eternal punishment of death. It'll be painful. It'll be over and over and over for eternity. Folks, this is your warning. I don't want anybody to go to hell. And the way we stay out of that is surrender to Jesus Christ. Give our lives to him. Because Christ Jesus warns the church that we must endure in our obedience to receive the hopeful reward Jesus promises those who are faithful. Let's pray. I'm going to pray Ephesians chapter 3, 16 through 20. says, I pray that from his glorious unlimited resources, he will empower you with inner strength through his spirit. Then Jesus will make his home in your hearts as you trust in him. Your roots will go down into God's love, keeping you strong. And may, and may you have the power to understand, as all God's people should, how wide, how long, how high, how deep his love is. May you experience the love of Jesus, though it is too great to understand fully. Then you will be made complete with all the fullness of life and power that comes from God. Now all glory to God who is able through his mighty power of works within us to accomplish infinitely more than we might ask or think. Glory to him in the church and in Jesus Christ through all generations forever and ever. Amen. Go with the Lord. You're dismissed.